Okay, let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you will anoint this message, that you will anoint these words, and that you would minister into our hearts right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. In part one of the series that I've been doing on the end times, which was titled um, The Coming Convergence, a couple of months ago, I spoke on the warning that Jesus uh, gave when the disciples asked him this question, what sign will signal your return and the end of the world? That was the question the disciples put to him, and Jesus answered it, in Matthew 24, 7 and 8. Nations will go to war against nation. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Now the second title I did in the series was The Miracle of Israel and the Coming Millennium where I shared about God restoring the Jews to their land. That's when Israel became a nation in 1948 after being scattered th throughout all the nations for 2,000 years. Absolute miracle. And then I sh shared about the 1,000 years that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem after Jesus returns. Now between the first pangs, which Jesus was talking about, wars, earthquakes, famine, there is a period, or sorry, between the first pangs that, that he talked about and the millennium period, there is a period in between there which is called the Great tribulation and and we're going to talk about that briefly today because that is one, one of the final signs that Christ is about to return so in part three today we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus and I'll be a little bit more specific on what happens just prior to his return now, I make no apologies for, um, in this message for summarizing the teaching of one of my favorite speakers and authors, David Pawson, from the UK. He's now in his 80s. I once met him, and uh, we went for morning walks together uh, at a conference in Australia, the first time that I had been hired to be the crusade organizer for Bill Sabritsky, I went across to Australia with Bill and David Pawson was the other speaker at this conference. What a blessing that was. And uh, David was up early in the morning and off walking around the motel and uh, I, I went with him and that was a, a wonderful experience. Just recently, I reread his book that I had uh, spent time studying some time ago and it's called Explaining the Second Coming by David Pawson, and you can order this for yourself, just Google the title, or inquire at your local Christian bookstore, 
To me, it's one of the most simplest and clearest understandings of the teaching of the second coming of Christ. And because I identify with what he's saying, I'm using his, his points in this message because he makes the points so much more clearer than I could uh, ever, ever do it. And last year, Jan and I watched David's nine-part MP4 series on Revelation. He's gone right through Revelation and explains it chapter by chapter by chapter. And you can download uh, all of those message, messages uh, for only $1.50 per seminar from that website, Inspirational Media. Inspirational.org.nz And I can tell you it's a real experience to watch David and hear him teach on Revelation because Revelation is very difficult to understand unless you have someone of his calibre bringing forth what the different verses mean. Do you know there are over 300 references to the second coming of Jesus in the New Testament alone? I don't know how many messages in the Old Testament, I haven't got that figure, but the Old Testament is full of prophetic words about Christ's coming. Not just his first coming, and sometimes the prophecies combine it. But in the New Testament alone, over 300 references, and so the problem is there's almost too much material uh, rather than too little. So to keep it simple, I'm going to run with... with what's called the topical, topical approach. Uh, just uh, simply answering four questions. And these are the four questions. Who will he come as? When Jesus comes back, who is he coming back as? Is he coming back as the Son of God before, when he was up in heaven, before he came the first time? The, the pre-existent Son of God, or is he coming as the incarnate Son of God? Is he coming as Jesus, who was, who was born in the, in, the, in the manger, and was only named Jesus? Do you know that Jesus wasn't Jesus before he was Jesus? He's always been the Son of God, but he was named Jesus when he was born. So just how is he coming back? Where? Where will he come to? Well, we've talked about that last time, haven't we? The whole world at once, or just one place is he going to be based at? How? How will the second coming be? Like the first, is he going to come, come back secretly? Is he come back, going to come back as a baby or as a child? Or is it going to be totally different? And when will he come soon? And suddenly, or only after some clear signals. Now, answering the first question, who will he come as? That's easily answered. When Jesus ascended to heaven after the resurrection, when he went up, when the disciples were out there and they saw him going up, two angels appeared and they said in Acts 1.1 men of Galilee why are you standing 
here staring into heavens. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So there's two things worth noting about what was said in that scripture. First, they used his human name and not any of his divine titles. So he's coming back as Jesus. <clears throat> Secondly, they emphasize that he will not have changed in the meantime. Do you know what it's like if someone goes away from home and maybe goes on a trip to Europe and uh, then stays over there and doesn't come back for 20, 20 years or 30 years? You, you wonder what they're going to be like when they come back. Will their personality have changed? Will they look very, very different? The angel said that Jesus is going to be the same as when he went. The truth is that the Son of God, God himself, became human. And he keeps his resurrected body for the rest of eternity. He is both man and God. Because only his resurrected body could have gone to heaven. It had to be a completely transformed body to be able to, to live in heaven. Because in heaven we live as spirits. So the scars of the crucifixion will still show on his hands. And the wound in his side and the nails in his feet, those scars will still be there. And I expect that he will only look 33 years of age. Because that's what he, the age he was when he left. But he will have flowing white hair. Because John in Revelation saw him, saw Jesus with flowing white hair. So maybe what happened at the cross turned his, turned his human hair white. I don't know. But because the Bible says we will be like him, maybe we will also look as we did when we were 30. Well, I don't know for sure, but it sounds a cool idea. Now, where will he come to? The whole world once or just one place in it? If the return of Jesus is physical, it must also therefore be local. His spirit can be everywhere, as it is in us now. But his body must be somewhere specific. Now, as mentioned last time, um, uh, well, he's going to come back to the city of Jerusalem. It is from the city of Jerusalem that he departed to return to his home in heaven, and it, and it is to this city that he will return from heaven. Now this poses another question. How will all the followers of Jesus from centuries past who are going to be returning with him, Bible says, Jesus says that he gathers the saints from heaven and earth. And, and those of us who survive the tribulation period which is up ahead, and get caught up to be with him as he returns, 
How will we all fit in Jerusalem? Do you reckon there's enough hotels for several billion people? And how can we visit Jesus in Jerusalem? The Bible says that the nations will come to visit during the millennium period. And whether and if there's a few billion there, particularly on his return, talk about no room at the inn. Well, the Bible gives us a twofold answer. First, his return will take place outside the city. Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is returning to the same spot. How do we know that? Remember I said the Old Testament talked about Jesus' second coming? Not, not just his first coming, but a second coming. Right through the Old Testament. It's hidden in a lot of the, a lot of the verses. Look at Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move towards the north and half towards the south. Yet the mountain alone could hardly hold the millions on this occasion either. So there's an answer here in Thessalonians 4.17. Then together with them, who are them? Them as all the saints from the past, then together with them we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air then we will be with the Lord forever yep there's plenty of room in the sky above Jerusalem and we won't have to worry about gravity because we will all have received our new immortal bodies in the flesh of a second. What does Philippians 3.21 say? He will take our weak, and some, of, some of us have weaker bodies than others, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And because we've got immortal bodies, it won't matter that we're hovering above Jerusalem or going down to Jerusalem, coming up again, whatever, because we don't need to use the toilet or the bathroom. However it is, and this is just a scenario of what, what's, of what could happen, it's going to be glorious because we're going to be with Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So how will the second coming be like? Like the first or totally different? Well, it can't be like the first, can it? Just as he ascended, so will he descend, not with just two angels, but with thousands. Upon his re and his return will be visible, audible, and tangible. Do you know what the, the noisiest verse in the Bible is? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That shout will reverberate right across the world. With the voice of an archangel 
and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now their spirits are already in, in heaven, but God dramatically, majestically raises the dead, their DNA or whatever it is, and gives them a body, an immortal body. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's quite clear what the scripture says. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one, one another with these words. You know, doesn't my friend, the New Zealand artist Graham Braddock from Kaukopakaba, capture the occasion in his painting called Come, Lord, Come. <clears throat> that picture ministers to my spirit. You can get prints of that from um, this website, fineartamerica.com fineartamerica.com When I was out at Arama one time Graham was teaching sharing and he put forth a great idea which I took up he said if you'd like to buy my, some of my prints why don't you give them to your children and on the, get them framed and on the back of them write a love letter to your child. And I did that. That picture there is, is hung up in my, one of my, my youngest son's room. He loves it. And whenever he moves flat or shifts, he has to take it down. And on the back of it is a love letter from me. And all my daughters have the same. So there's an idea. And why do we do it with things like this? Because we need to tell our, our children that Jesus is coming back again. It is the greatest hope in the world. So when will he come? Soon? Suddenly? Or only after some clear signals? You know, if we knew the answer to this, we would be possessors of the greatest secret in the world. Hey, Ben, do you know the date that he's coming back? What about you, Diaz? Ben? Ben, you reckon Ben? <laughs> Janet, do you know? <laughs> no one knows. No one knows except God himself. Jesus, however, God on earth, at the time, gave us a very big clue. And it's in Matthew 24, verse 33. After lifting the signs of the end times, he says, in the same way, when you see all of these things, earthquakes, famines, war, the great dictator, which we're coming to, and the abomination of desolation in the temple, when you see all of these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. 
Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus gives us a fourfold framework of future events signaling his return. You can go home and look it up and read it. Matthew 24. Now, remember these four Ds. D for David. Sign one that Jesus gave us. There will be disasters in the world. That's Matthew 24, verse 4 and 8. Sign two, deserters in the church. Matthew 24, 9 to 14. The third sign is dictator in the Middle East. Matthew 24, 15 to 28. And the last sign before his return, darkness in the sky. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. The first sign, disasters. This sign is clearly (laughs) visible now in the year 2017. I believe we are seeing this sign take place before our very eyes. There have been something like 40 or more international conflicts since World War II, to say nothing of all the civil disturbances. Much of this world is actually at war. You wouldn't know watching TV3. You wouldn't know reading the New Zealand Herald. Earthquakes are apparently doubling in number every 10 years, and famine is widespread in in the undeveloped world. Those of you that get Facebook uh, messages or emails from uh, the various mission agencies, you will know that they are fighting an uphill battle to stop the starvation in many, many countries. In Sudan at the moment, absolute, utter devastation. Now, how long will this state of affairs continue, or how much worse it can get is anybody's guess? but it is the first sign of his coming. The second sign, deserters. Deserters from the church. Jesus talks about it. Pawson lists three features of this desertion that's that's happening and going to happen. First of all, followers of Jesus will be hated by all nations, which will bring a corresponding increase in martyrdom you must know that hundreds of thousands of Christians are losing their life every week, every month, somewhere around the world, particularly in the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, with ISIS, but also it's happening uh, down uh, just above Nigeria and the Sudan. Christians... If you say you're a Christian, they give you one chance to change and say, no, I want to be a Muslim. One chance and you're dead. And that is happening by the hundreds of thousands. It's also happening in parts of India and Pakistan. You know, there are approximately 250 political nations in the world today. It's also happening in the Philippines, where you have just been out in the outer limits ISIS is in control of part of the Philippines. And the army can't get them out. And what are they doing? 
Oh, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And you're dead. I'm glad you didn't get out that way, Cassidy. And there, Christians are under pressure in all but 30 of those nations. And in those 30 nations, we will see tremendous pressure against Christianity happen very, very quickly. Do you know if you stand up in the pulpit in England and, and just say the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin? If someone records that and reports you, you can be fined or jailed. The Bible says. And that pressure is going to happen here. And the church and, and pastors, if you're, if you're listening to this, need to be familiar with the first three chapters of Revelation. Because the first three chapters of Revelation provide a curriculum on preparing members for suffering and sacrifice. The next point that Pawson makes is reduction. Such pressure which is going to come upon the church and it's going to come upon us to stand up and be a Christian will reveal the differences between genuine and nominal Christians. Mere churchgoers, those that come once in a blue moon and come for Easter, come for Christmas, they'll, they'll, when all this pressure comes on, they'll give, give way and give up really quick. Their love cools as a result of moral compromise with an increasingly wicked world. How many folk used to come to this church but now don't get out of bed on a Sunday morning because they've given up? Paradoxic, paradoxically, there's also great expansion. There's reduction and expansion. And that's because a church purified under such pressure becomes a preaching church. World evangelism will be completed, the Bible says, and only then will history be wound up. So the Cassidy's of this world will be off and about evangelizing. We will be learning from what Des has been teaching and on the video we saw last Sunday of reaching out to those that we are meeting with and we're being kind and we're being willing and we're being Jesus to them. Now when the pressure comes on, some of us will be preaching and teaching and witnessing even more than we've ever done in our lives. But some of us will leave the church because we can't handle the persecution. Where are you in that scenario? Think about that. The fourth thing that's going to happen in this period of people deserting the church is false prophecies and false teaching will become rampant. Way back in the Old Testament, it says in Jeremiah 6.14, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace. Many churches are teaching what's called a coaching message. Set your goals and do this and do that and everything will be right. 
not dealing with the sin that is in the lives of the people that they are speaking to and encouraging them to repent, deal with the sin, and accept Jesus as forgiveness. The basic gospel message is not preached in many churches today. It's going to get worse. Porson says that one current example is the teaching that all Christians will be taken out of the world before the big trouble or the great tribulation begins, which is the next sign we're about to talk about. And this leaves many Christians unprepared for the trials and testing ahead, which thousands of their brethren are already suffering, as we've just discussed. You know, it's a sobering challenge to read the prediction of Jesus who said that many will turn away from the faith and the love of most will grow cold. Can I repeat that? Because it's very, very significant. It's very, very serious. It's a sobering challenge to read the prediction of Jesus that many will turn away from the faith and the love of most will grow cold. I pray to God that none of us grow cold in our love towards Jesus. But rather, I pray that the Lord will birth inside of us a fervent fire for him. So the defection will not be negligible. It won't be a small amount of people falling away. When the real tribulation period comes, it's going to be huge. Another false teaching, I believe, this is my notes, is uh, what, I, what is called hypergrace, which leads to universalism. It's the heresy that it doesn't really matter about sin. We're all going to be saved anyway. Now, this is the opposite of what Jesus and the apostles taught. It's the opposite. The next sign, sign three, is a dictator in the Middle East, Matthew 24, 15 to 28. Paulson teaches, and I've always understood the same thing, and many of us have, that um, the trouble that has always afflicted God's people over the, over the centuries will reach a short sharp crisis known as the Great Tribulation. And as you know, the Apostle John was on the island of Patmos in the, in the end of his days. Many of the disciples had already been killed and there was just a few left. And he had been sent to the island of Pat, Patmos and had to live in a cave, I think it was. And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to him. What a marvellous, marvellous sight that must have been. He was visited by Jesus and he was given an amazing vision of what was to happen in the future, which is what Revelation is all about. And at one point during this vision, while he was in heaven, in the vision, one of the 24 elders asked him, Revelation 7, 13 to 14, who are those who are clothed in white? He had just seen hundreds of thousands of people coming up into heaven dressed in white. 
And the elder said to John, who are these clothed in white? Where did they come from? And John said to him, sir, you are the one who knows. Now don't ask me, duh. I've only just got up here in a dream. <laughs> these, the elder answered, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. Folk, there'll be hundreds of thousands of Christians martyred in the great tribulation. But praise God, the moment any of us lose our life for standing up for Jesus, we're ushered into his presence. Let's go back to uh, the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 24, 15 to 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's the temple in Jerusalem, Whoever reads this, let him understand. Jesus expects us to understand what he's talking about. Then let those in, in, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. A careful study of Daniel, if you've read it and studied it, reveals that six centuries before Jesus was born, Daniel had a vision of a human conqueror who, in the very city where God has been honoured, would utter blasphemous words and commit obscene deeds, provo provoking great mental and physical distress amongst God's people. The Apostle John refers to this person as the Antichrist. Antichrist means a substitute rather than an, an, an antagonist acts as if he is God. 1 John 2, 18. Little children, in the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Paul in Thessalonians talks about this man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4. Let no one deceive you, by any means. For that day will not come. What is that day? That day is the second coming of Christ. All throughout scriptures, it talks about the great day of the Lord. It talks about that day. It only talks about one day, and it's the coming of Jesus Christ. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. We've just talked about that, haven't we? The falling away from the church. And the man of sin is revealed, so that's likely to happen soon. The son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's a bit of a problem at the moment that it can't quite happen because there's something else sitting on the place where the temple of God, God is, should be located. So I don't know whether it's going to be bombed or whether they're going to build, when they're going to build something new, but something is going to happen soon. Chapter 13 of Revelation, if you really want to know more about this, gives us the most information about the Antichrist. Where 
where he is described as a beast, and with his religious colleague and co-conspirator, the false prophet, they will set up a totalitarian regime, a regime that rules the world, in which only those who submit to this authority by being branded with their mark are allowed to buy and sell food and goods. Since the authority of this tyranny, which is going to happen, and we can see it beginning already, is likely to be universal rather than just in the Middle East. The distress will be unprecedented. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 21 to 22, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been seen since the beginning of the world. Until this time, no, not ever shall be. And in fact, unless these days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, that's us, those days will be shortened. It's going to be a very short period of time and it will also include God's wrath coming down upon the earth. Another friend of mine, I was just speaking to him last week, is called uh, Graham Carl, G-R-A-E-M-E, Carl. He's a New Zealand author and pastor. He's just published two books on Revelation, which I re- recommend you get hold of. I've just read them both, fast read, and they're worth reading, although I don't necessarily understand them all. First one is Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws, which is all about Revelation 12, where it talks about the woman who gives birth to a child. That woman, of course, is Israel. Fantastic. He also talks about the coming of Elijah before Christ returns. Elijah came in the form of John the Baptist, and Elijah's, the spirit of Elijah is going to come again. Just in quite what form? Don't know. A second book, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Strange title, but it's all about the uh, rise of the Antichrists, spirit of Antichrist. You can get those books from Emmaus Road, M E M M A U S Road, EmmausRoad.org.nz. They are brilliant, they've just been published. And Graham's view is that this two and a half year period I'm talking about of the tribulation has actually been happening since AD 70 when the Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem. And it's been running for 2,000 years until the Gentiles um, leave Jerusalem. It was overrun in 70 AD until the times of Gentiles have been fulfilled, which must be very close, because Jerusalem was taken back by the Jews in 1967. That's how, how, how close it was, 1967, which was the Six-Day War, and Jerusalem was taken. But, duh, the guy who was in charge gave the temple back to the Muslims. And so that area of Jerusalem is still under Gentile control. And the latest manifestation of the Antichrist spirit is, of course, radical Islam. And radical Islam is the strongest force in the world 
against Christianity and the Jews today. Nevertheless, it remains my opinion, and it might be his because I haven't read his third book yet because he hasn't written it, that we are yet to see the short, sharp conflict soon as a final attempt by Satan to have the world worship him. Four, sign four, the last sign before Jesus returns is darkness in the sky. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. This final sign is unmistakable, folks. All natural sources of light will be extinguished, leaving the whole sky black as ink. The Hebrew prophets talk about this and it's quoted in Acts 2.20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. When that happens, the nations will see the lightning coming from the east and flashing to the west. They will see Jesus riding in the clouds. As full realisation of the significance of what is happening dawns on unbelievers, who he comes to as a thief in the night, you know the scriptures say? He comes as a thief in the night. He doesn't come as a thief in the night to Christians. Christians know that he's coming and they will recognise the sign. The world has no idea. They will be overcome with grief, how wrong they have been, what opportunities they have wasted. Now they will be the one, ones to experience unprecedented distress. But not so the believers who have waited so long for this day. They too will see the lightning, but they will also hear the sound of the trumpet, loud enough to wake the dead. Angels will escort believers from the four corners of the world, is what the scripture says. Their first trip to the Holy Land, because they're going to meet with Jesus, who is coming down upon Jerusalem. For many, it'll be the first trip to the Holy Land. I haven't been there yet. But for everyone, it'll be the first free flight. It's generally known as the rapture. Rapture is the Latin translation of the comes from the Latin translation of the Bible. It's not in the Greek or the Hebrew, but it's from the Latin translation, and it means snatched up. And it's taken from First Thessalonians four seventeen. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Who's them? Them's the saints coming back from heaven and their bodies being miraculously reformed. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, of course, as the believers are transported to Israel, to the heavens above, unbelievers will be left behind. As Jesus said, there will be two men working together on Dez's farm. Dez will be taken, and the other who hasn't been led to the Lord just then will be left behind. It's one of the reasons why Dez does his darndest to represent Jesus to everyone who comes and works for them because he doesn't want any of them to be left behind. 
including you, Tony. He wants you to be with him as well. And you will be. Praise the Lord. Two women will be in the kitchen. One will be taken and the other left. Even families will be divided. You can look it up yourself. Luke 12, 51 to 53. In the meantime, I've got a question to ask you. Are you born again and filled with the Holy Spirit of God? The Bible teaches us to repent of our sin, which keeps us from knowing God and his ways, and invite him to become the Lord of our lives, to get baptised in water, as Jesus himself did as an example, and then ask Jesus to baptise or fill us with his Holy Spirit. Or do you know and love Jesus, but you have family and friends who won't be going with him if they die, or won't be with him if they die before Jesus returns, or could be left behind when he does come. You know, we can grab hold of a scripture and believe it and see all of our family saved. Scripture's quite clear. What's the verse reference, Janet? Acts 16.31 If you believe, you and all your household will be saved. I believe that for my family members that haven't committed themselves to Christ. Yet. So let's just close by bowing our heads and praying. I want you to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you if you don't know him thanking him for your salvation if you do and believing for your whole household to be saved because you believe. And pray for your friends who don't know the living Jesus Christ. Purpose in your heart to never stop praying for their salvation, their healing and their deliverance from the molestation of the enemy. Let's just pray quietly. Thank you, Ray. It was good, and it's good to um, have an understanding.